I've treasured the words of His mouth more than my necessary food. Brothers and sisters, this is a call that God has given us to do likewise, to treasure the words of His mouth more than our necessary food. To come now and thus fellowship around His Word, both, both preached and enjoyed at this table. So let me invite you to turn your Bibles, Romans chapter 8, and let's do just that. And your bulletin is the outline. I encourage you to locate that, follow along, take notes. Um, Romans 8 is the text that we're currently on, and we're going to look at this morning at verses 9 through 11. And brothers and sisters, this is indeed God's Word. Uh, let's, as we read it out of reverence and respect, let's read it with reverence and therefore let's stand out of reverence for the authority of our King as we read his, his word. Hear now the word of our Lord. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in, um, dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word and this privilege You give us each week to gather here without fear of reprisal, without fear of persecution, but to gather and openly study together your word. Lord, we pray, grant our study um, your grace that we might learn. Grant us unction as we study together that we might learn with application, that we would be responsive to what we hear and see, that, Lord, we would be changed by your grace, line upon line, precept upon precept, nevertheless changed. We pray for your glory. Give me grace, therefore, to preach your word with fidelity. And use this, O Lord, we pray to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In Matthew chapter 19, we read of an interaction between Christ and a rich young ruler. Now, you know this story probably very well. This rich young ruler comes up to Christ and wants to know what he must do to be saved. And through the process of a conversation, um, he realized that he wasn't willing to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The cost was too high. So the text ends with the man walked away sad because he wasn't, in essence, willing to give up his wealth. Well, it's the next event which is significant in my mind. The next event has Peter as a spokesman for the rest of the disciples, asking Jesus Christ a rather interesting question. Listen to the question. Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, and you know what that means. You're never going to believe this, Lord. Lord, this is amazing. In comparison, I'm sorry, in comparison to that man, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What's there for us? It's an ugly question. In essence, brothers and sisters, it's a question which says, look how much I have done for you. I've done you a favor, God. Now what's in it for us? What good is it to serve God? And we ask that question. You may not use those words, but every single time you and I uh, feel exasperated by the things of this life, exasperated with God because God will give us a break. How much longer? Every time you feel that way, 
You may not have asked the question, but you are reflecting the question. Lord, what's in it for us? I thought following you meant this, and instead we got that. And you know what's amazing? Jesus doesn't rebuke the disciples here. Instead, he responds. Jesus said, truly I say to you that, he, uh, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, second coming, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, new heavens and the new earth, you shall sit upon 12 uh, thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or farms for my sake, implication, in the regeneration, shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is an incredible statement. What's in it for us? Look at Matthew 19, 28 through 29, and you will be overwhelmed if you meditate upon those individually. What's in it for us? And yet you hear it, and as glorious as that is, nevertheless, it really is referencing the next age. So the question is, are there temporal benefits in being a Christian? And the Bible answers that in the affirmative with a lot of verses. In fact, recently, Zechariah, remember that I, a, a part of our study in Zechariah, there was a whole series of statements that we get, God's people get, in this veil of tears. Well, of all the verses this morning, we are on a passage that also gives us a description of what we get in the here and now because of Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul is introducing himself to the Romans. He wants to minister there, so he, he sends this epistle before him um, to introduce himself to um, this church, or better yet, to have the church introduced to Paul, um, because no doubt, while he hadn't been there, his reputation had, his reputation was he was calling people to, to disobey the Old Testament, to, to not follow it. So Paul introduces himself in Romans. And in Romans 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3, the theme basically this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, therefore all are under his wrath, and therefore... By God's grace, salvation comes through the glorious sacrifice of Jesus Christ that displays both God's justice, His holiness, and His mercy and kindness. And chapter 3 ends with this glorious declaration of the gospel. Chapter 4 is simply a, a de, um, Paul demonstrating that what he is preaching, 1 through 3, is backed up in the Old Testament. Abraham, David. Their lives teach exactly chapters 1 through 3. Then in chapter 5, he turns to a description of the benefits that flow from Christ. Our theme. Chapter 5. But he very quickly digresses. Because what he says in chapter 5 makes him think of sanctification. So Romans 6 through 7, Paul is describing the doctrine of sanctification. And after his digression, he goes right back to what he was, was talking about in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 8, describing the benefits that flow from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Now we're looking at chapter 8, the benefits re uh, referenced there. The first one was no condemnation. The last one, last week we saw fellowship with God Almighty. Brother, these are the things we tangibly enjoy today. And if you don't think enjoying no condemnation is something you don't enjoy, then brothers and sisters, you're not living by grace. What a glory it is to know every time I sin and I feel guilty, ah, uh, no, there is no condemnation. Lightness comes to our breast whenever we feel the heaviness of the law. Okay, no condemnation. Fellowship with God ever and always. 
And now that this morning, what I've titled a transformed life. Now you might title it differently. You look at the, the three points that he makes. I think they all testify to the same thing. You know what we get? We get a transformed life, a different life because of the saving benefit of Jesus Christ. Notice with me the three elephants. The first element is it involves a new owner. Notice with me verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Literally, if indeed the Holy Spirit has taken up residency in you. Now this is written in reference to what was just said in verse 8 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And Paul here is saying, but you're not in the, the flesh. You are pleasing God. And he, I know this because of, notice that phrase, if indeed the Spirit of God, that, that word if um, sounds like uh, um, it's not certain, but it is certain. The way this if is being used here, you could translate it, if as is the case, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So he makes this incredible statement on the heels of a statement about the fellowship we have with God, the communion we have with God. He ends on the dour note, or on this down note, um, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And then he says, but that's not you. And once he says that, notice what he says next. And this is what makes this next point incredible. Notice with me 9b. But... If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him, to God, to Christ. If, you don't have, if you're not saved, you don't belong to God. And this is the, the, the first element of the transformed life that we have. Brothers and sisters, when you were saved, you became of God, literally. You became the property of God. Prior to your redemption, prior to salvation, you were lost. Formally, you were enslaved to the world, to your flesh, to your sin. Ephesians 2 describes that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in this form of death, you, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Brothers and sisters, before someone comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, they're enslaved. They are slaves. But when you become to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you stop being a slave of yourself, a slave of Satan, and you become, hear this, you don't become autonomous. You don't become free. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is not emancipation. It's redemption. Do you want to understand what the difference is? Salvation is not emancipation. When you think of emancipation, you mean you think of freedom from slavery. I'm no longer a slave. That is not salvation. In salvation, you go from being the slave of Satan to being the slave slash servant of God. Autonomy is a lie from the pit. You and I are not ever, are we outside the realm of servitude. We are either servants of Satan, servants of self, or servants of God. 
And the glory is, in this uh, uh, context, brothers and sisters, salvation brings us into, into the, the service of God. The verse that, that clearly teaches this, Romans 6, 16 through 18, let me read it. Do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone as slaves for obedience, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were uh, committed. Having been freed from sl- uh, sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Autonomy is a delusion. There is no such thing. You and I fancy ourselves because of uh, the American system. We don't have kings. Um, we're free. This is a, the, the, the land of the free. And so we have this mentality that in Jesus Christ, Christ liberated us from Satan. That we understand. We know what it's like to be enslaved to sin. Most of us, yeah, God liberated us from that horrible uh, condition. Now I can do whatever I want. I am free. And brothers and sisters, that is just not the case. The glorious benefit Paul is describing here is that you went from being a slave of Satan to becoming a slave of God. Talk about a transformed life. Imagine being a slave, a servant in a horrible, wicked, evil household in the ancient world. And then having someone redeem you. You know what the word redeemed means? That's a word for slavery. It means to buy a slave out of that form of slavery into your form of slavery. It's not a a release. It's a transfer. So you're being transferred from this horrible, horrible state into the... A home that you would walk by on those horrible hot days that you're carrying that massive amount of weight on your back, going to to the market where you're going to be beaten and and ridiculed by your master for fun. You'd walk by that house and go, boy, I wish I could be a slave in that home. I wish I was a slave of that man's kingdom because those, those servants there, look how they're treated. Brothers and sisters, that's the idea of what this text is saying. That you and I now belong to God. His name is written on your shoe. Thinking of Toy Story, right? His name is written on your shoe. You, you don't, you're not free. Praise God you're not free. There was one free man in one sense. You could say there was a free man once, Adam. He was free to do whatever he wanted to do. And, he, and he, he messed it all up. None of us are free. But brothers and sisters, the question is, who is your master? Whose slave are you? And the glories of the gospel is that we have become servants. Slave. Now, we use the word servant because it's a nice euphemism. But that means we're slaves. Listen to what Paul says. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, um, I'm sorry, not 2 Timothy, Paul calls himself, Romans 1, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He's a slave. His his words that he'd used to describe himself, I'm a doulos. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.1, Paul said to Timothy, Paul and Timothy, he said, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. You know what a saint is? Someone's claimed by God for his purpose. You're slaves, you're servants. We have become servants of God. 
And if you hear that, um, and that sounds, yeah, man, I don't know if I like that. Brothers and sisters, that's just because you don't understand the character of your God. First Peter 2, you, you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. What does that mean? Well, if you were to tr- translate a little bit different, more uh, possessive, you could say you were once not a people, now you're God's people. What does that mean? God's people. This is, this, is, this is Greg's notes. That was Greg's bulletin that just fell down. This is Greg's notes. These are my notes. These are the notes of Greg. I own the, those notes. If you came and ripped them out of my hand and I was eight years old, I would go, yeah, you know, I want my note, mine, right? Mine. Brothers and sisters, we're, we're God's people. First John 5, we know that we are of God. This is something to rejoice over. We are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John got it right. He's rejoicing this. We are of God and everyone else is under the power of this horrible, wretched being called Satan. This being, think about his household. Do you know what you are, what a person is in the household of Satan? Something to be manipulated to make God mad or jealous. Revelation chapter 12. Satan doesn't care about you. He doesn't care about people. He doesn't care about the people under him. He is thrilled to, make, to torment them and make them miserable. He's thrilled to see them enslaved. He's thrilled to, uh, uh, to see them sorrowful, mourning, sick, uh, um, sad, name it, dead in the, in the lake of fire. He's thrilled to bring as many down as he can because there's nothing good in this being. He is evil. But then you've got God. And he made you, you and me servants. But, but let me ask you something. What, what, what kind of a servant is it that's called by God to co-reign with him over creation? Not just in this age, but the age to uh, come. Do you call them a slave who's been given the charge to oversee the world in which we live according to our, our, our will, which is now driven and governed by redemption? And do you call that a slave? What is But brothers and sisters, it's so glorious, it's so wonderful, you'd never think you were a slave. You'd think you were a free man to do whatever you wanted because now that you are redeemed, what do you want to do? What do you want to do as a redeemed person? Is it not simply to exalt, glorify, and honor a being who is so good and so kind and so gracious and so near and so um, um, self-sacrificing for us? Jesus Christ, get this, God Almighty, the text says, did not come to be served, but to serve. What kind? It almost makes it sound like he's the slave and we're the, the object of his, slave, of his servitude. And we know that's not true. He came to serve God. But brothers and sisters, do you understand the incredible life change that salvation's brought? You are now happy servants in the house of God. Incredible. You are his people, and therefore you get his protection. Exodus 14, 14. What kind of a God, what kind of a master says this? The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. That's your boss. That's your God. That's your master. He fights for you while you keep silent. Interesting. You know, there's a lot of examples, metaphors of this fighting. I want to read one of them to you. 
If you want to turn there, turn there. 1 Samuel 17, 41. In fact, I encourage you, turn your Bibles there. I'm going to read a lengthy passage. But this is a beautiful description. All of the Old Testament is written in reference to Christ. It's written to point to Jesus Christ. I want you to read a passage that um, has a messianic figure, a Christ uh, figure, standing up, fighting on behalf of his people. His people kept silent. Okay, so the scene is this. This nine foot plus tall monster man. The Nephilim, part of the Nephilim, is uh, touting and challenging God's people to a duel. God's people are in the mountains quaking for their lives. And Philistines down there saying, give me a champion. And if he kills me, we'll be your servants. And if I kill him, you'll be our servants. Why, 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 why go to battle? And a, a champion stepped forward. Verse 41. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. Brothers and sisters, Isaiah says that when Christ appeared, we disdained him. Because he was smitten, cursed of God. And we, we saw him. It wasn't beautiful, but we still disdained him. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? <laughs> How many times has Satan said that to God's people? March around a city seven times? What a bunch of losers. You know? You're, you're going to conquer me with a little piece of wood? What a loser. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the field. Do you know, brothers and sisters, why you're cursed to hang on a tree or one of the curses that people hang on a tree, the birds come and eat their eyes. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have tainted or taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head uh, from you. Isn't that what happened in Genesis 3 uh, 15? What did Christ do at the cross? He removed the head of the serpent. And I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Brothers and sisters, that is what it's like to be a servant of that God. We're up in the mountains quaking for our lives. What about Putin? What's he going to do next? What about COVID? Who's it going to kill next? We quake in our boots at so many things in this world when brothers and sisters, do you understand, just like Peter in the presence of Jesus Christ, maybe God gives you that bigger glimpse. Jesus is more than just an earthly Savior. He's God Almighty. And He's made you one of His children in His household. Yes, you're a servant of God, but what a God. Brothers and sisters, what a God. And that is why Matthew 10, Christ says, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Brothers and sisters, the first characteristic, the first element of our transformed life is that we have a new owner, a new master. We're serving a benign, awesome, holy, omnipotent being who loves us.
Wow. Secondly, would you notice a transformed life involves a new life. Okay? A new life. We pick it up in verse 10. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit, the human spirit, is alive because of righteousness. This verse is full of theological significance. Let me walk away through it. First phrase. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin. Remember the three Ps of sin? Sin has a penalty, death, a power to enslave, and a presence. Okay? Well, this is talking about if Christ is in you, though the body is dead, this is about the presence of of sin. You're in Christ. The power has been dealt with. The penalty has been dealt with. But it still has a presence. And so there's still, our body still is in a fallen state because of sin. Yet, the spirit is is alive. This is the doctrine of vivification. Okay, if you're taking notes, you want to know a big word you can use to impress your your next door neighbor? Uh, Whatever. You know, the doctrine of vivification. um, Yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. We're going to talk about righteousness in one moment. Um, to say that the Spirit is alive is to say that our Holy Spirit, that our soul, our, our spirit, our Holy Spirit, our soul, our spirit has been resurrected in Christ and now lives. Now to understand this resurrection, this new life, you've got to go back to the beginning. So we're going to go back to the beginning in your minds and think of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God, out of the dirt of the ground, formed a man. And then what did he do? He breathed life into this being. When he breathed life into this lump of clay, that life, we break it down theologically into four separate ways to describe this life. He had, Adam at that moment, man became a spirit, he got spiritual life, got, a, got moral life, physical life, and eternal life. Okay? Now at the fall, um, all of those were either destroyed or corrupted. Okay? The one I want you to focus on this morning is the moral life. We're going to talk about the moral life that we have um, that was given to us at uh, creation that was destroyed, wiped out at the fall. Okay? And that moral life consists of three things, three elements. This is a fill-in. Holiness, righteousness, and knowledge. Holiness is papers of ownership. God owns us. Righteousness is a perfect record. And knowledge is a relationship with God. So the moral image of God in us involves a perfect standing, being owned by God, and fellowshipping, communing, loving God with this interactive relationship with God. That's what it was. We know what happened at the fall. All of that was completely destroyed, completely obliterated. Okay, We have what we call the natural image of God, and in the natural image of God, that's our ability to, 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 to do art and music. and That has not been destroyed. That's been completely marred. That's been, that's been marred. But we still, non-believers still write music. They still, they still do all kinds of creative things. That was, that was marred. But the moral image of God, completely destroyed. We lost that facet of our being, of our life. Well, guess what Jesus Christ did in his first advent through his cross work? Two verses. Ephesians 4.24, let me read it. Paul says, put on the new self which in the likeness of God, the image of God, the restored image of God, has been 
created or recreated, redeemed in righteousness and holiness. Okay? Righteousness is what's being referenced in verse 10. Yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. We now have a right standing with God. And that right standing leads to being claimed by God, holiness. Now that we're pure, God claims us. He cleanses us and claims us. He adopts us. You're my children. And then with that adoption, we now have Colossians 3.9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who sent him. Brothers and sisters, what does Christ get us that was lost at the fault, that facet of our living? The elements that lead to a relationship with God. Okay, not only do we have a, 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 um, a new owner, but brothers and sisters, we now have a new life. And that life now it has the ability to fellowship with God. Because we have a right standing, we have a new owner, and now we have access to fellowship with God at all times, in all places. Last point, right? A last point last week. Fellowship with Almighty God. Now, let me ask you something very important. Whose knowledge, righteousness, and holiness do we possess? You say, it's ours. Listen to 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 1.30. By God's doing... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, another word for knowledge, knowledge from God, righteousness, and holiness. Do you understand what Jesus is in our lives? He is our righteousness. He is our knowledge. He is our holiness. In other words, the life that you and I have today is not your life, it's Christ's life. Colossians 3, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. The life that pulsates through your body is Christ's. That's the new life. Vivification. Let me describe it this way. You know heart transplants? You're aware of that concept of a heart transplant? Okay, if you did a heart transplant, if someone did a heart transplant, underwent a heart transplant, what would be the biggest um, concern about that heart in that body? The issue of rejection, right? You put the heart in their body and that heart's in a pump and do its job, pump the blood throughout the body, but the rest of the body's a different body or better yet, the heart's different from that body. So the body thinks it's a foreign substance. So the body starts attacking that heart. So what you do on heart transplants is you got to take a cocktail of drugs to, to, to protect the heart from being the object of the body's attack. So even though that heart's doing a whole lot of good for it, the body's attacking it, wants to attack it. Unless, of course, it's so doped up, it has no idea who the enemy is, right? So that, that's what you do. You use cocktail to protect the body from rejecting the heart. You know what? Redemption's different from that. When you're redeemed, you get the heart of Christ. And you know what that heart does different from our heart transplants? That heart begins to take over the body. Its cells begin to renew the body. And so rather than being threatened by the body, the heart transforms the body. Such that that body begins to function differently. It starts functioning according to the life provided by that heart. That's what Jesus Christ has done. 
When we were saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, we received His righteousness. We received His holiness. We received His fellowship. And so, brothers and sisters, you've got a new life. And that life has begun today. And that life is enjoyed as you and I walk with God and possess that life as Christ Himself possessed it. It's not your life. It's Christ's life. So now we are called to live. And get this, because His heart beats within us, if you will. We are best, our life is best and most easily lived when we live in, uh, according to how, how Christ's life is, as described by God's Word. Right? This heart that beats within us, it doesn't do well in a context of sin. So when you and I give ourselves to sin, it hurts our body. Poison in a snake and poison in a body. Poison in a snake is a delight. Poison in a human body kills. Sin in a non-believer is its delight. Sin in a, in a, in a believer kills. And so brothers and sisters, we've got this new life. Why do we do the things that we do to get God to love us? No, because we've got this life and it functions according to a, way, a specific way. And the more we do that way, the more happy we'll be. The more fulfilled we'll be. The more joyful we'll be. That's a new life. So we got a new owner today. We got a new life today. That leads us then to the third one. Verse 11 involves a new hope. Notice with me verse 11. But if, literally, as is the case, if, as is the case, that's how we're going to translate it, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's, it is uh, the case, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. All right, this is stated because of what Paul just said in verse 10. Notice with me verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin. Hear that phrase? There was a, a heresy going around in the early church. and it became, in, in, the people, in the apostolic age, it began there. And it's called pre-Gnosticism. And it became full-flowed in the third, uh, fourth century AD with Gnosticism, which believed that the physical is evil. Okay? God is, 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 is divine spirit, and he's, he's perfectly pure, and the physical is evil, and it was created by a lesser form of being. So God created a lesser being, a lesser being, a lesser being, a lesser being. Who created the angels? Who created the earth? That's Gnosticism. And so God, being pure spirit, could not have any interaction or dealings with, with the physical. So the physical didn't matter. And that led to one of two things. Either you were ascetic, Colossians 3, that, or, or, or I'm sorry, uh, Colossians, that's the heresy there. Either you, you, you tended towards asceticism, don't touch, don't taste, don't, don't indulge, don't do anything because it's evil, or you're a Corinthian and you said, it doesn't matter. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. What I do with my body doesn't matter. I can sleep with a prostitute. It's evil, but I'm not. Um, it doesn't matter, all right? So those are the two extremes. And so when Paul came in Romans 12 and said, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, that was a radical statement in that day. Massively radical, because the body was viewed to be evil. Well, we get it in this passage too. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Why is that important? Because verse 10 just said, the body's dead. The body 
AKA could possibly mean the body's evil. Now, Paul doesn't say that, but that's easily taken from that verse. So Paul gives verse 11 to clarify something very important. And that is, in Jesus Christ, we now have life in our mortal bodies. Our, lives are go- our, our mortal bodies are going to be given life. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about that when Jesus Christ comes back, just like when Jesus died, his spirit left his body, and then three days later, his spirit entered back into his body, and his body was resurrected. Well, that's gonna, what's going to happen to us, 1 Corinthians 6, 14. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. It could be the same thing with us as it was with Jesus. Okay? We're going to die. And if we don't die because he comes back, still there's going to be a transformation. Our bodies will be completely transformed um, into another state. And then they'll be purged of sin. That's the presence of sin, so the third P of sin. That will be taken care of at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Our bodies will be purged from sin, remade, and, we, and our souls will be reunited with our bodies. And we will spend eternity in a physical, corporal existence with our current bodies. We read about it in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory. Our bodies are going to look like Christ's. What does Christ's body look like today? Well, read Revelation 1. You'll get an insight into it. Christ's body is glorified. Our body is going to look like that. Well, what are some of the elements of this? Well, let me give you a couple. 1 Corinthians 15, 40, 42 through 44. Let me describe as Paul has there. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one, or, um, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it's raised imperishable. Two days ago, I was sitting down in, on the couch. Janet sat right there, 45-degree angle. We start talking. Within three minutes, I pinch a nerve in my neck. I'm like, oh, ugh, ugh. And so now i got a pinch nerve. My neck's really tight. i got to take drugs so I, I can be here and not being stiff-necked. Um, brothers and sisters, I am so tired of pinch nerves. This has been a bane of my entire existence. Um, my son Paul inherited that. He's home today with his pinch nerve. Uh, he, he moved his neck and it popped. Now his head sideways. Um, man, guess what, guys? Oh, that's changed someday. Some of you have other things. I know some of you have autoimmune issues where your body's eating itself up or, or viewing its body as the enemy. Guess what? That ends in glory. You know what ends in glory? My body metabolizing the, what I stick in, in, into it and turning it into fat, excess fat. That ends in glory. Right? The perishable will put on the imperishable. It it is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in natural body. It's raised in spiritual body. Pneumatikos body. I want to define that for you real quickly. That does not mean um, an ethereal um, substance without, or, you know, something that's ethereal without a substance. The spiritual body is in contrast to an earthly body. And what is an earthly body? An earthly body is a body designed to fit the world in which it was created. A spiritual body is a body designed to fit the world in which it's created. So the second coming, we're going to receive a body that will fit the world of the new heavens and the new earth. Let me explain what that means. Exodus 33 tells us no man can see God. 
and, and, and live. They will die. Guess what? First John 3, 3 says, in the new heavens, new earth, we will have a body with eyes that can gaze upon the full um, manifestation of the glory of God. And it won't kill us. Right now, we have a body that, that gets weary because of sin and misery. Isaiah 40, 31, we will run and not grow weary. We'll walk and never faint. And right now, we are subject to sickness, illness, disease, death. Revelation 21, 4 says, he will wipe away all tears from our eyes. There will no longer be mourning, nor uh, crying, sickness, or death. Brothers and sisters, we're going to have a body fit for the world in which we live, which means we'll have a body that will be able to do everything we want to do. If in glory you want to disappear, your body will be able to. If in glory you want to take a gun and shoot it at yourself, you'll be able to do that and it won't even damage your body. Now, now, do you understand the if here? Who in glory would want to disappear? Who in glory would want to run, right? <clears throat> we won't want those things. But everything you will want, everything you will want and desire to do, your body will be fit. That's what a pneumatikos body is. So brothers and sisters, <coughs> what's, what is the third thing that we get? A new body. It's not evil. It is us. And someday it will be redeemed gloriously. And what's the condition if there is one? Verse 11. If, as is the case, the spirit of him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you. That's Ephesians 1.13 or 14, which says that the spirit of God is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Do you know what that word in the Greek is? Down payment. Do you understand that the Holy Spirit resident in your being right now does so many things, but one of the things that it does, it guarantees that your body will be redeemed. Guarantees it. So brothers and sisters, what's in it for you and me? We're following Jesus. And we have a lot of difficulties in our lives. As we've said, the difference between you and I and a non-believer in terms of physically what goes on in this world, is, is the same. I mean, think about it. When you feel picked on by God, understand you are no different from the non-believer in the next hospital room. Okay? It happens to everyone. We're in a state of sin and misery. But the difference between you and your hospital room and there and theirs is that you have a new owner, a new life, and the promise of a new body. So as bad as this cancer may be, eating my body up. I've got a God who loves me in this very moment, even though I'm in a hospital room. I can fellowship with that God, and He is present. He is here. One of, I'll, I'll say this as we wrap up. Brothers and sisters, one of the things that blew me away when I took a class on pastoral care in seminary was a statement that Jay Adams makes in his book, Shepherding God's Flock, is that when you go to the hospital room, you are going to bring, literally bring Jesus Christ. Or better yet, bring forth Jesus. He's already there. You're going to bring him forth. You're going to let them see Jesus Christ is there beside them. And then when you leave, you want to leave with the aroma of Christ still in that room. Brothers and sisters, it needs never dissipate because Christ is present in your life. You have a new life. You have fellowship with God. You're always united with Jesus Christ. So does it make a difference? Brothers and sisters, the only way you'd say that is if you were looking at the world 
lusting for the world, longing for the world, and you'd say, no, Christianity has not made a difference. And you're right. Christianity will not make a difference in your earthly desires. It won't. Um, I will say Christianity makes sin more fun. But that's not Christianity, really. That's God's common grace. He withholds the consequences of our sin. He won't do that in hell. Okay, so yeah, there, there's an element that God's grace does. But brothers and sisters, Christianity will not make sin more fun. I, I recant that statement. Brothers and sisters, Christianity will not make any other sinful desire better. It won't. But Christianity, what God does through the grace of Jesus Christ, makes a world of difference on how you and I uh, live and move and have our being because we've got a God who owns us, protects us, who walks with us, who goes before us, who came to serve us and enable us and is right now transforming us unto the image of Jesus Christ for the sole purpose that we might find her all in all in Jesus Christ. And that's the reason we were made. And all of this will culminate when he comes back at his second coming. So brothers and sisters, are you blessed? Boy, are you ever blessed. Are we blessed in Christ? We are so blessed. So when Peter said, what's in it for us, Lord? As ugly as that may have sound, especially um, juxtaposed next to the young, rich young ruler who walked away, <laughs> what's in it for us, Jesus? We're still here. Okay, that's a pretty ugly statement. Yet God, in his condescending grace, didn't rebuke. He answered him. What's in it uh, for you? You've got glory. And the rest of Scripture says a whole lot more. In the present state, you've got so much. Brothers and sisters, may God give us the grace to live as men and women who possess in our person a key that that unlocks every door in Doubting Castle. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible gift that you've given us in the keys of this book this morning as it describes the new owner, the new life, and the new hope that we have in you. God, I pray for this, your body, this, the, our us, this body, that God, we would be responsive to this. That Lord, line upon line and precept upon precept, you would transform us and change us into the image of Jesus Christ and that we, your people, would respond this day. That Lord, we would take Um, the critical heart and the critical spirit and not deny it, but simply bring it before the throne of grace. That, Lord, you would, in your grace and in your mercy, open our eyes, just like you did the servant of Elisha, that we might be able to see the glory that is ours in you this very moment. God, please, Lord, transform us by the renewing of our minds showing us this and much more as we continue studying this book. Thank you, O Lord, for the benefits that are ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, looking upon this, we respond by saying, Lord, what is man that thou dost take thought of him? Or the son of man that thou dost care for us? Now, why, why, why us? Why did you save us? Why would you give us such glorious benefits? And Lord, there's no answer to that, we know. But nevertheless, we muse and wonder over all the glory that is ours in you because of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.